Amen. Thanks, you guys. Well, if you were with us last week, we began a new series looking through Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These are the letters to the seven churches of the first century. And they're really important, as I explained last week. When you think about it, we have Jesus who taught for about three years, and then he was killed. We value his teachings in the Gospels so much. Combination of what he taught for three years, the bulk of it in the last couple weeks of his life, and then ultimately a little bit of his teaching after he rose from the dead before he ascended into heaven. And really there was no church at that point. So he's giving instructions to people about when the day comes when you're actually a church, here's the way it's supposed to be. But now we don't hear anything else from him. God's working through apostles. Churches are growing. Good things are happening. But what I love about Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is this is Jesus, you know, 50 years later or more saying, oh yeah, by the way, here's an update on what the church is supposed to be. It's one thing to establish a vision for a church that doesn't yet exist. It's another thing to step into an existing church system that's been around for a generation and then say, let's have a checkup. Let's talk about how you're doing and what you're doing. And so as a result, chapters two and three, if you, if you have a, you know, a Bible that colors the letters, it's the, the red letters. It's, it's Jesus talking to the church and it's Jesus talking to us. And for me, it's really important to hear what he has to say about a church that's established. Because what he says here is as relevant as what we are today in terms of how are we doing and what are we supposed to be doing. This is the last word of Jesus until the future after everything is all wrapped up. So to me, that makes these really important. As I explained last week, each of these churches was an actual church in the first century, all of them in what they called Asia or Asia Minor, but what we know of as Turkey. And so Ephesus was the one we looked at last week. It was the first church in a series of, you could draw a line from Ephesus to all seven of the churches, and it was pretty clear that the intention of Jesus was, take these letters and take the book of Revelation and pass it along to these various churches in these places. So he's saying, and while you're passing it along, I have something, a personal greeting for each of these particular churches because even though these churches are at the same time, they're all having different characteristics and as a cross section, it's such an important word from Jesus to us as his church and it's more relevant today than it was to them even in the first century. So we saw that Ephesus was first. Ephesus was an incredibly important city and an important church as we discussed last week. Paul started the church in Ephesus on his third missionary journey and he pastored that church for three years, which was a lot for Paul. He moved around a lot. Then 
Timothy ended up pastoring there. Apollos pastored there. Ultimately, John, the disciple of Jesus, the one who is being receiving this revelation so that he can pass it, he pastored there in Ephesus as well. And after he finally got released from Patmos, he goes back to Ephesus and that's where he died. And as I told people, we'll, we will next year, those of us who are heading over there, when we go to Ephesus, we'll go to the church that's built over the place where John was buried. So it's a logical place for him to begin this message. The church in Ephesus, he had a lot of good to say about it, but he had one concern, basically one central concern. And as we saw it, he's saying, you know, you guys, your theology is good. You're really good at sniffing out phonies. You're really good at exposing people who are twisting doctrine. And that's awesome as far as it goes. But you've lost your first love. You're not understanding that love is of primary importance. And your lack of love will cause me to snuff out your church. Your church's very existence is at risk, not because, well, your theology is getting weak or because you're not evangelizing. Your existence is threatened because of the fact that you forgot what matters most. You forgot that love is the most important thing. Now, for John to send this message from Jesus to his home church must have been heartbreaking because John, we call him the apostle of love, He's the one, he called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. You read everything that John writes in his gospel, in his epistles, and it's all about how important love is. And here he is passing this message down to his home church and saying, you guys are losing that love that defines you. And your survival is not threatened because, oh, there's false teachers. That never threatens. The real threat is losing your love. You lose your love, you lose your existence. So they sent that message out, and it was an important place to start. Care about the things that are most important. And so now we get to the next church is the church in Smyrna. Now, if you remember, Ephesus is at a strategic location. If you look at it, on a map, it's on a harbor right where the Aegean Sea is a, is a huge bay that comes off the Mediterranean Sea between um, Greece and Turkey. And so Ephesus, or if you look on a map, they'll call it Kusadasai. That's the, that's the um, Turkish word for, for the city. But you can look at it on Apple Maps and it'll show you where it is. But it was a harbor that was right near where the Mediterranean Sea flowed into the Aegean Sea. And it was a strategic location. It was also a huge place for paganism, as we talked about last week. So there, were, there was a temple of Diana there that's one of the, well, the goddess Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So culturally, they really had it together. 100,000 seat amphitheater, a 20,000 seat theater. It was the center of culture, the center of paganism, and it was an important place for trade because of its location 
right there at the, at the entrance to the Aegean Sea along the Mediterranean. So you see that. Now, as we get to Smyrna, which again on your Apple Maps, it'll be called Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, but it's similar in a lot of ways to Ephesus, but it's a little further up into the Aegean Sea. And so it's a harbor as well. What we know historically though, it was a, it was a superior harbor to Ephesus for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, because it's a little bit more up into the Aegean Sea, it's a little, you know, 50 miles or so north of Ephesus, it, it is more protected from weather. The, when they would have storms, the silt would wash into the, to the bay at Ephesus and larger ships couldn't even get in there sometimes. But Smyrna didn't have that problem because of it being more protected. If you look on a map, you can see that. But it also, Smyrna had like multiple large rivers that were flowing out of the land from all directions into their harbor. As a result, your trade could run up and down those rivers, plus those rivers could bring fresh water into the harbor. And so Smyrna had a, had a really a pretty amazing location. Um, also, if you go there, or even if you just look on a map, you'll see it. They had this view across the Aegean Sea to Athens, the ancient you know, Greek capital. And that was a big deal to them because their city, like Ephesus, had been restored by Alexander the Great. So they, they were connected to Greece and they could look out, the, out their window and see it out there. And that made it really interesting. They... Um, what the Smyrna, the reason it was called Smyrna is because one of their major products was myrrh. It was stuff that was used for embalming fluid, which you go, God, what a thing to be known for. Of course, Jesus got it as one of his baby gifts, but, but obviously with some intention of symbolism there. But if you think about it, what better product, what better business to be in than the business of burying people? because you always have plenty of business. I have a friend who, who runs, has a mortuary, and every time I see him, I'm like, how's business? He goes, better than ever, because <laughs> people are still dying. Um, and so they had that going for them, but they had a lot of trade. There were also, in Smyrna, there were a lot of Jews that fled there after uh, 70 AD when, when the Romans ran over, under Titus had run over Jerusalem, spread the Jews out, quite a, quite a group of them ended up there in Smyrna, which made for an interesting political climate there because you have people who are, you know, they were really big on Rome, but they could kind of get together. You had people who were super loyal to Rome, and then you had these Jews who were threatened by Christians because Christianity was growing by this time, and, you know, you're into the... 90 AD or something. So Jews were scattered, Christians were growing, and the Jews found a strategic alliance with the Romans. Now that might seem weird. The Romans are the ones who destroyed Jerusalem. But at the same time, they were the big fish in the pond. And the Jews understood their biggest threat isn't Rome. Their biggest threat is Christians. And so 
they gathered together there and all of a sudden Smyrna became one of the major places where um, you know, horrible persecution of Christians began to grow up. It became a popular sport. And it was the Jews stirring up the Romans. The Jews were telling the Romans, you can't trust these Christians because they don't believe in your gods. They were often, in literature, the Christians were referred to as atheists by the Romans and by the Jews. And that might sound weird to you since we know that, hey, we worship the same God as the Jews, and they believe in one God. They're, you know, they're not polytheists. But what you have to understand historically is, am I boring you? Okay. Um, what you have to understand, just checking. What you have to understand historically is the Jews had their one God, but they didn't care if people who weren't Jews worshiped other gods. That worked fine for them. In fact, it made them feel more special. We have our God, you have your gods, we all have gods. So for them, the idea that like Christians could say, nope, all those fake Greek and Roman gods, all the delusions, it's gone. There's only one God, period. So for them, the easiest way to stir up the Romans is go, you know, they, those Christians hate your gods because they're like, we have no problem with your gods because we have our God, but he's just our God. We're not, we're not into the business of making people Jewish. We understand that. So they weren't evangelistic. As a result, though, the Romans and the, and the Jews began to really gang up on the Christians and persecute them. And so it was a place where some of the worst persecution came about during that time. So here's the letter to the angel, the messenger, really, of the church in Smyrna. And I explained last week the word angel just means messenger. These aren't, you know, people flying around or, you know, it's not Shohei Otani. It's just messengers. And so they're taking this message, perhaps the pastor's. And he said, here's what I want to say to you. These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Each of these letters are addressed using some of the description of the glorified Jesus that you find in chapter 1. So if you read back there, you'll see where he extracts some of those things in order to, to identify himself. But it's interesting that Jesus, in writing to Smyrna, starts out by saying, I know all about death because I've done it. And I came back from it. Death wasn't the end for me. Death was very temporary. I had a grave that I just rented because I wasn't going to stay there. And so that's who I am. So now he's going to talk to them a little bit about death, which was, for many of them, was impending. And he's like... I know what I'm talking about. I've been there, you haven't. And so he's establishing this identity. And then he said, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know how you're doing life. I, I see what's going on with you. And again, in the word for works there isn't like, I know how many good things, charitable acts you're doing or whatever. It's just, ergo is just a word that means, I know how you do life. I see what you're doing. And I see your tribulation. Now, there are people who go, oh, see, the church is there during the tribulation. The word tribulation just means pressure. It's used a whole bunch of times in a whole lot of different contexts. 
the, the um, seven years of tribulation that Revelation's going to unveil is a whole different, you know, it's, it's in a whole different category than I see your tribulation. He's not saying you are in the tribulation now because then the rest of it showing that it's yet future wouldn't make sense. The word tribulation just means pressure. And he goes, look, I understand that you're under pressure. It's hard for you to do what you're called to do because there's pressure on you. And he said, I get it. And I understand, I see your poverty, but actually you're rich. Already, they were sacrificing greatly because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And at least partly because of their their unwillingness to make a commitment to the emperor, you know, to the Caesar. At that point, they had developed a, again, Smyrna was the first place where they out and out worshipped Caesar. They decided he's a god. And so everyone was kind of required to take a pinch of incense and offer it and say, Caesar is Lord. Now, for some of the people, they're like, hey, he's Lord, and small l. You know, they would play this game. But the Christians were so convicted that there's really only one Lord that they would refuse to make that pledge. As a result, it affected their ability to do business. Even as later on in Revelation, we will read about people who won't worship the beast end up, you know, it costs them their ability to buy and sell and to do business. So this was already being experienced by them. And he goes, I get it. You're becoming poor because of your integrity. But the truth is, you're actually much richer than people who sell out in order to compromise their faith. So I know that. By the way, this is one of the only churches that he doesn't tell them anything bad that they're doing. Um, we saw in, in Ephesus where he's like, okay, you got this, that's good. You got this, that's bad. You got this, that's good. It, these guys, he doesn't say anything bad about them. But he said, uh, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He has those Jews that think, that pretend, that act like they're representing Yahweh, They're fooling themselves, but they don't fool me. I get it. They are blaspheming. They are speaking against you, claiming to represent their God. And they're complete, you know, they're completely corrupt. There's nothing real about their faith. They don't even deserve to be called Jews. They're a synagogue of Satan. But he says, I get it. But do not, verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. I'd rather hear somebody say, do not fear, you're not going to suffer. And he goes, you think it hurts now? It's going to hurt worse. But I don't want you to give in to fear. I don't want you to get panicked about what's going to happen. There are some people who read the book of Revelation and they see what the Bible says is going to happen on the earth and they're like, ah! or they're worse yet, Christians who are like, oh, thank God I'm not going to be there. Or why? There are going to be people who are there who are your brothers and sisters who accept Christ. You really think it's that great that you're not going to be? I don't believe that I'm going to be there. 
But at the same time, it's like, I don't, I'm not afraid of that. If it turned out that I was wrong and that the rapture isn't coming before the tribulation and I'm going through the tribulation, that does not give me great concern. I would be thinking about how many people I could take out before they cut my head off. And I'd be like, well, that's good. At least I know my mission. But he says, look, I don't want you to be afraid. Bad things are going to happen. And for a fact, things got much worse in Smyrna, for sure. But he said, fear is your enemy. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Oh, great. And their prisons were awful, by the way that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. People debate what this actually means. There are some people who say they talk about there were actually 10 emperors and as a result, it's talking about all of those. Other people say, well, the final emperors who was persecuting the Christians really bad was in office for 10 years, so 10 years is 10 days. It's probably just a Greek expression that means for a while. It's like 10 days. You can, you can deal with anything for 10 days. But he said, be faithful until death. Thanks. I was really hoping that there was some escape clause here. He said, nope, you're being persecuted now. You're sacrificing now. But someday you're going to get killed. And you remain faithful. You're going to get killed one way or the other. You just don't. You have your priorities straight if you remain faithful while you're being mistreated and ultimately killed. And I will give you the crown of life. Crown of life is mentioned in other places as a reward. It's not the word here for crown isn't the word for a crown that a king would wear. It's the word for a crown that a victor would wear, a crown that would be given as a um, you know trophy for someone who's really overcome. He goes, trust me, you'll die, you're faithful. In the end, you're going to look at it and go, this was one of the best things I ever did. This was something that was really precious to me, the crown of life. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He goes, Death is coming. It's going to come to all of us. Some of you will die in pain. But don't lose your perspective because there's another death that's way more serious than this one. The first death, Jesus is like, I did it. Bounced right back. I'm here to tell you, you're going to be fine. Don't be afraid of death. What you should be afraid of is dying without hope for eternity. Dying without knowing what's going to happen to you after that because there is a permanent death that if you refuse to be in fellowship with God, if you turn Jesus down as his offer for salvation is given, now you should be afraid. But you should be more afraid of being found to be somebody who's denied your faith than you should be afraid about somebody who who acknowledges their faith and ends up being killed. So he lays this out for Smyrna. It's like, wow, I thought it was bad. It's going to get worse. In fact, it did. It got a lot worse because they began to, you know, 
rile up the Romans in order to earn points, and in cooperation with the Jews, some of the worst persecution in the first couple centuries of the church centered in this area in Smyrna. And one of the guys that ends up being there, a guy uh, named Polycarp, who was actually, he was trained under the Apostle John. So while John was pastoring in Ephesus, Polycarp was probably being mentored by him. Maybe he was a youth pastor or something. And he was growing up and he ended up becoming the pastor of the church in Smyrna. So he had that connection. Well, Polycarp, if you follow through history or you read about the martyrs of the church, he was one of the most well-known ones. He had been faithful. He had served the church. Persecution was getting worse. They had a whole arena where they would bring Christians down there and they would just, they thought it was a great sport. You offer them incense. They go, take a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord and you know, you can go free. And, you know, they're like, you could cross your fingers, you could, well, Lord, but not, whatever. But they paraded people, and there was a crowd there hoping that some Christian would say no, because then they would release the wild animals and have them tear them to shreds. And it became a big sport. And you go, how sick was that? But let's face it, it's still a popular sport to watch people devouring each other, just not quite like this. But they, they started yelling, bring in Polycarp, guys in his 80s. And they finally dragged him down there, and he walked into the arena, and they said, okay, pinch of incense. Say Caesar is Lord. Come on, man. I don't want to kill an old guy like you. Dude, just do it. You, can, you don't have to mean it. Just say it. And he goes, not going to say it. And the crowd just went nuts, said, release Polycarp to the lions. But by that time, it was so late in the show that all the animals were pretty much full and, and they had taken them off into their cages. And so the, the Roman proconsul of the day said, we'll burn them at the stake. And they're like, okay, fine. So they tie them up to a stake and they put wood around it and they light it on fire. But he's not being burned. He's singing praises to God. And the proconsul goes, come on, you idiot. Just, just say that Caesar is Lord. Deny Jesus. And he said, for 86 years, he has been faithful to me. And I will not deny him now. And the guy's just infuriated. And he's really mad that he's not burning. And so then he took a big spear and stuck it in him. His blood like came out and put out the fire. People who were witnesses at the time swear that as Polycarp died, singing a praise to God, that a dove flew up out of the flames and smoke and flew into the heavens. And people are like, wow, that guy really believed what he said. He was probably 86 years old. Now, the people who want to believe in infant baptism, by the way, use Polycarp's statement. You know, he's been faithful to me for 86 years to argue that he was baptized when he was a baby, and that's why, you know, but that's silly. There's nothing, there's nothing biblical or historical to support that. But there he is. And imagine you're somebody that's a part of his church, and you're like, you're remembering what Jesus said. I told you 
told you it was going to be like this. I said this was going to happen. And I'm telling you, there will be times when you make a choice between your faith and and an absolute denial of that faith. And it won't go well for you on this earth. I'd love to promise that miraculously you'll be delivered. Nope, you're going to die. And, you know, if you're in Smyrna, you're like, well, I thought we had it bad now. It's going to get worse. It's one of the reasons probably why Jesus didn't write anything negative to him about them. Because, like, trust me, you're going to learn soon enough. What everything else, you're going to learn what matters most. You know, when I consider this and I think about our age, about the church, here we are a couple thousand years later, what do we know about persecution? I mean, Christians today, for the most part, are the whiniest bunch of babies who think that they're being persecuted because, you know, the government might take your guns away or, or you know, the, the government's going to, you know, affect your election or the government's going to make you bake a cake for homosexuals. or your, It's like the stuff you hear people whining about, it's not like being burned at the stake. It's like you bunch of babies, you have no idea what persecution is like. Persecution isn't people laughing at you or making fun of you. Persecution isn't that Carl's Jr. came up with a, a new El Diablo burger that costs $6.66. I don't have persecution. <laughs> Putting some freak's picture on a can of beer. That's not persecution. Are you kidding me? You're, you're being ridiculous. And yet, there are people today who... Think about this church. They went to church. They could have easily just said, well, I just have a personal relationship with God. So I will, they couldn't really watch online, but... It would be like there was nothing that would keep them away from being a part of the church. Today, we're like, and people act like, oh, guy, if the government says that we can't meet or we lose our tax-exempt status, talk to them about that. Talk to Jesus as he's explaining this. It's like we have such a strange, twisted view of what persecution really is. And, And yet, today all over the world, in different places, there are our Christian brothers and sisters who are being severely persecuted as bad as anything that the people in Smyrna endured. I was just reading yesterday about a, a family who uh, the, this, these radical Muslim extremists, this was in Africa, and they came in and told the man to deny his faith and he wouldn't. They cut his head off. And then the wife and kids ended up getting beaten up, but then they escaped before they were forced into marriages. And now they've come back to what's left of their house and they're rebuilding it and holding church meetings there. And it's like, okay, that's persecution. But we don't even like to think about it. We don't even like to consider the fact that there are places, there are people today when I decided whether to go to church or not, well, I kind of felt obligated, but... um, (laughs) You know, when I'm making those kind of decisions, there are all across Iran Christians who are being persecuted under the threat of death and they huddle together and they go to church anyway. It's, it's happening. It happens all the time. Now, are we the lucky ones who have gotten so soft and, and compromised 
that we don't even, you know, we can't relate to it at all. The people who are being persecuted often say every day they pray for us over here because they know what wimps we are and that if things take a turn, we will have no idea. We're used to a popular Christianity. We're not used to being targets. And when we become targets, you know, now you find out what your faith is really made of. By the way, when it comes to what brought this all along, be very cautious about making alliances with Caesar, making alliances with a particular political interest, issue, or party. I get why you want to do it. It feels great to think that we are going to get more power if we can get the right people into position. No, that never has worked. Study your history. It doesn't work that way. It can't happen that way. The truth is, we are always designed to be a minority that's under persecution. And if we compromise and we sell out to Caesar, even in a small way, it's like, oh, let's just throw a little you know, incense out to him and go, he's awesome, him and Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is warning us about. And it happens all the time, by the way. The desire to be popular leads to a compromise of what you really believe, and now you're very careful to grease the right palms and to support the right people. Why? Not for the gospel, because I want my life to be comfortable. I want to insulate myself from persecution. There was, a while back, there were a group of Christian leaders and pastors who were invited to go into the office of our national leader and, and pose for pictures. They all got it on social media. Oh, praying for this guy. And I love that. I think it's cool. Except when they left his office, he turned to his aides and said, what a bunch of blanking morons. That's Caesar. That's the way it works. Sorry, we're never going to fit in. We're never going to be on the winning side until death happens. We're never going to be on the winning side until Jesus returns. You can take all the pleasure you want in thinking that if we whip up some big thing, well, we're going to take over. Learn from what Jesus said to Smyrna. It doesn't work that way. You'll know you're doing it right when people hate you. You'll come to understand ultimately that death is what you look forward to. You will get this perspective that Paul talked about when he said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you understand? You're going to die. Now I know the rapture could come and you won't. But for almost 2,000 years, people have died. And maybe you have a friend who didn't, you know, whatever. <laughs> Good for you. But you're probably going to die. Are you okay with that? Have you come to terms with the fact that Jesus said, you're going to die, but I've done it already, and it's not that big of a deal. Don't live your life in fear of death, because it happens whether you are afraid of it or not. But what you will do by living in fear by living with a, a manic obsession with trying to connect and be popular and, and, you know, let's get stronger and let's become a powerhouse. And it's like the cost of that is you waste an opportunity to truly understand what Jesus is actually saying here.
And that's something that we, we ignore at our own peril. But if we understand that death is the end of all of us, and then what happens after? Now, everything begins to come into perspective. If I'm living my life saying, I don't want to compromise. I'm not trying to make a big splash. I'm just wanting to live faithfully. And if I'm not being persecuted, I'm getting suspicious of why. In the end, we all die, but we choose. Do I die with faith in the one who died for me? Do I die with the knowledge that I'm coming back and better than ever and I will live for an eternity? That's the biggest question that there is in life is do you understand you're going to die? Do you know what's going to happen afterwards? And so Jesus is sharing this with Smyrna and I guess if life is going to hurt, I would like somebody to know that it's not a waste. That when it looks like I'm a loser on the earth, when it looks like things aren't going my way, not a concern. He said that was the way it would. He predicted it. He told us, no, you're never going to be popular. You're always going to be killed in one way or another. You're going to give your life. But give it for what? At what price of compromise will you sell out your Lord? That was what Smyrna needed to know. And that's the difficult decision that we need to face as well. Unless you think that somehow we've advanced way beyond what Jesus was saying here and things are different today. We're winning. No, we're not. We're not being persecuted. There's a reason. Who needs to persecute us? We're weak and frail and, and, and gutless. If you're not being persecuted, you're probably cutting corners somewhere. Something to think about, at least. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the church at Smyrna. Thank you for people like Polycarp and thousands and thousands of people since Polycarp who were willing to suffer rather than to kiss up to the government, rather than to compromise their faith, rather than to opt for a pretend version of Christianity that wins. The only way we win is with death. We thank you for that message because some of us are probably facing persecution right now. But our brothers and sisters all over the world facing horrible persecution and, and thriving because of it. I pray that we would see that perspective. Help us to quit being crybabies about stupid little things that don't matter. Help us to stay focused on eternity and the knowledge that we're going to suffer and we're going to die and then the good part comes. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.